This is Horror Stories Podcast. Welcome, I'm Robert Crandall, and you are a very special, magnificent person for choosing to listen to this podcast, and I'm grateful. If you would like to support the show, you can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Robert Crandall and buy me a coffee. I love coffee. I am enjoying some coffee right now. So uh, please uh, do so if you can. Uh, Don't forget, too, to send in your nightmares when you have one. Sometimes, though, uh, you can't remember the nightmare you had before, or or it's very vague and spotty, and you can't. uh, But just uh, do the best you can and send it in. Send it to us uh, to uh, myhorribledream at gmail.com. And we appreciate it. We like to read them on the show. Our feature story for this episode is about two men who set off to find a forbidden city. And what they find is not what they anticipated. I hope you enjoy The Primal City by Clark Ashton Smith. In these after days, when all things are touched with insoluble doubt and dereliction, I am not sure the purpose that had taken us into that little visited land. I recall, however, that we had found explicit mention in a volume of which we possessed the one existing copy of certain vast pre-human ruins lying amid the bare plateaus and stark pinnacles of the region. How we had acquired the volume I do not know, but Sebastian Polder and I had given our youth and much of our manhood to the quest of hidden knowledge, and this book was a compendium of all things that man had forgotten or ignored in their desire to repudiate the inexplicable. We, being enamored of mystery, seeking ever the clues that material science has disregarded, pondered much upon those pages written in an antique alphabet. The location of the ruins was clearly stated, though in terms of an obsolete geography. And I remember our excitement when we marked the position on a terrestrial globe. From the very first, we were eager to behold the alien city in certain of our ability to find it. Perhaps we wished to verify a strange and fearful theory which we had formed regarding the nature of the earth's primal inhabitants. Perhaps we sought to recover the buried records of a lost science, or perhaps there was some other darker objective. I recall nothing of the first stages of our journey, which must have been long and arduous, but I recall distinctly that we traveled for many days amid the bleak, treeless uplands that rose rapidly like a tiered embankment toward the range of high pyramidal summits guarding our destination. Our guide was a native of the country, sodden and taciturn, 
with intelligence a little above that of the llamas which carried our supplies. He had never visited the ruins, but we had been assured that he knew the way, which was a secret remembered by few of his fellow countrymen. Rare and scant was the local legendary concerning the place and its builders, and after many queries, we could add nothing to the knowledge gained from the immemorial volume. The city, it seemed, was nameless, and the region about it was untrodden by man. Desire and curiosity raged within us like a calendar, and we gave no heed to the hazards and travails of exploration. Over us stood the eternal azure of vacant heavens, matching in their desolation the empty landscape. The route steepened, and above us now was a wilderness of cragged and chasmed rock, where nothing dwelt but the sinister, wide-winged condors. Often we lost sight of certain imminent peaks that had served us for landmarks but it seemed that our guide knew the way, as if led by an instinct more subtle than memory or intelligence, and at no time did he hesitate. At intervals we came to the broken fragments of a paved road that had formerly traversed the whole of this difficult region. Broad cyclopean flags of nice, channeled, as if by the storms of cycles older than human history. And in some of the deeper chasms, we saw the eroded piers of great bridges that had spanned them in other time. These ruins reassured us, for in the primordial volume there was mention of a highway and of mighty bridges leading to this fabulous city. Polder and I were exultant, and yet I think we both shivered with a curious terror when we tried to read the certain inscriptions that were still deeply engraved on the worn stones. No living man, though erudite in all the tongues of earth, could have deciphered those characters, and perhaps it was their very alienage that frightened us. We had sought diligently during the laborious years for all that transcends the dead level of mortality through age or remoteness or strangeness. We had longed ardently for the esoteric and bizarre, but such longing was not incompatible with terror and repulsion. Better than those who had walked always in the common paths, we knew the perils that might attend our exorbitant and solitary researches. Often we had debated with variously fantastic conjectures the enigma of the mountain-builded city, but toward our journey's end, when the vestiges of that pristine people multiplied around us, we fell into long periods of silence, sharing the taciturnity of our stolid guide. Thoughts came to us that were overly strange for utterance. The chill of elder eons entered our hearts from the ruins and did not depart. We toiled on between the desolate rocks and the sterile heavens, breathing an air that became thin and painful to the lungs, as if with some admixture of cosmic ether. At noon we reached the open pass and saw before us 
at the end of a long and quickly opened perspective. The city that had been described as an unnamed ruin in a volume antedating all other known books. The place was built on an inner peak of the range, surrounded by snowless summits little sterner and loftier than itself. On one side the peak fell in a thousand-foot prepices, but the overhanging ramparts on another were terraced with wild cliffs, but the third side, facing toward us, was a steep acclivity with broken-down scarps and chimneys that would offer small difficulty to expert mountaineers. The rock of the whole mountain was strangely ruinous and black, but the city walls, though gaped and worn to a light dilapidation, were conspicuous at a distance of leagues. Holder and I beheld the born of our worldwide search with thoughts and emotions which we did not voice. The Indian made no comment, pointing impassively toward the far summit with its crown of ruins. We hurried on, wishing to complete our journey by daylight, and plunging into an abysmal valley. We began at mid-afternoon the ascent of the slope toward the city. We were impressed anew by the abnormal and manifold cleavages of the granite. It was like climbing amid the overthrown and fire-blasted blocks of a titan citadel. Everywhere the slope was rent into huge, obliquely angled masses, often partly vitrified, which made the ascent a more arduous problem than we had expected. Plainly, at some former time, the stone had been subjected to the action of heat, yet there were no volcanic craters amid the nearby mountains. Puzzling greatly, I recalled a passage in the old volume, hinting ambiguously at the dark fate that had long ago destroyed the city's inhabitants. But from this passage I could still draw no definite conclusion for the ideation was too fantastic to be understood as anything more than a dubious figure of speech. We had left our three llamas at the slope's bottom, merely taking with us provisions for a night. Thus unhampered, we made fair progress in spite of the ever-varying obstacles offered by the shattered scarps. After a while we came to the hewn steps of a stairway mounting to the summit but the steps had been wrought for the feet of a colossi, and in many places they were part of the heaved and tilted ruin, so they did not greatly facilitate our climbing. The sun was still above the western pass behind us, and for this reason, as we went on, I was much surprised by a sudden deepening of the char-like blackness on the rocks. Turning, I saw that several grayish, vapory masses, which might have been either cloud or smoke, were drifting idly about the summits that overlooked the pass, and one of these masses, rearing like a limbless figure, upright and colossal, had interposed itself between us and the sun. Sebastian and the guide had also noted this phenomenon. Clouds were almost unheard of amid those mountains in the summer, and the presence of smoke would have been equally hard to explain. Moreover, the gray masses were wholly detached from each other and showed a peculiar opacity and sharpness of outline. 
At a second glance, they did not resemble any cloud forms we had ever seen. For about them was a baffling suggestion of weight and solidity, moving sluggishly into the heavens above the pass. They preserved their original contours and their separateness. They seemed to swell and tower coming towards us on the blue air from which as yet no lightest stirring of wind had reached us. Floating thus, they maintained the rectitude of massive columns or of giants marching in a broad plain. I think we all felt an alarm that was nonetheless urgent for its vagueness. Somehow, from that instant, it seemed that we were penned up by unknown powers and were cut off from all possibility of retreat. We had ventured into a place of hidden peril, and the peril was upon us. In the movement of that strange clouds there was something alert, deliberate, and implacable. Polder spoke with a sort of horror in his voice, uttering the thought which had already occurred to me. They are sentinels who guard this region, and they have espied us. We heard a harsh cry from the Indian. Following his gaze, we saw that several of the unnatural cloud shapes had appeared on the summit toward which we were climbing, above the megalithic ruins. Some rose half-hidden by the walls, as if from behind a breastwork. Others stood, as it were, on the topmost towers and battlements, bulking in portentous menace, like the cumuli of a thunderstorm. Then with towering swiftness, many more of the cloud presences towered simultaneously from the four quarters, emerging from behind the gaunt peaks, or assuming sudden visibility in midair, with equal and effortless speed, as if convoked by an unheard command, they gathered in converging lines upon the air-like ruins. We the climbers, the whole slope about us and the valley below, were plunged in a twilight weird and awesome as that of central eclipse. The air was still windless, but it weighed upon us as if burdened with the wings of a thousand cacodemons. I remember that I was overwhelmingly conscious of our exposed position, for we had paused on a wide landing of the mountain-hewn steps. We could easily have concealed ourselves amid the huge fragments on the surrounding slope, but for the nonce we were incapable of the simplest movement. In a close-ranged army, the clouds mustered above and around us. They rose into the very zenith, swelling to insuperable vastness and darkening like Tartarian gods. The sun had disappeared, leaving no faintest beam to prove that it still hung unfallen and undestroyed in the heavens. I felt that I was crushed into the very stone by that eyeless regard of that awful assemblage, judging and condemning. We had trespassed upon a region conquered long ago by strange elemental entities. We had approached their very citadel, and now we must meet the doom our rashness had invited. Such thoughts, 
like a black lightning flared in my brain. Now, for the first time, I became aware of sound, if the word can be applied to a sensation so anomalous. It was as if the oppression that weighed upon me had grown audible, as if palpable thunders poured over and past me. I felt I heard them in every nerve, and they roared through my brain like torrents from the open floodgates of some tremendous weir in a world of genii. Downward upon us, the limbless Atlantean stridings there swept the cloudy cohorts. The swiftness was that of supernatural things. The air was riven, as if by the tumult of a thousand tempests. It was rife with an unmeasured elemental malignity. I recall, but partially, the events that ensued. But the impression of insufferable darkness, of demonic clamor and trampling, and the pressure of thunderous, burdenous onset remains forever indelible. Also, there were voices that called out with the stridor of clarions and a war of gods, uttering ominous syllables that the ear of man could never seize. Before those vengeful shapes, we could not stand for a moment. We hurled ourselves with a mad precipitation down the shadowed steps of giant stairs. Polder and the guide were a little ahead of me, to the left hand, and I saw them in that baleful twilight on the verge of a deep chasm, which in our ascent had compelled us to much circumambulation. I saw them leap together, and yet I swear they did not fall into the chasm, for one of the shapes was upon them whirling and stooping even as they sprang. There was a blasphemous, unthinkable fusion as of forms beheld in delirium. For an instant the two men were like vapors that swelled and swirled, towering high as the things that had caught them, and the thing itself was a misty Janus, with two heads and bodies melting, no longer human, into its unearthly column. After that, I remember nothing more except the sense of vertiginous falling. By some miracle, I must have reached the edge of the chasm and flung myself into its depths without being overtaken as the others had been. How I escaped the pursuit of those cloudy guardians is forevermore an enigma. Perhaps, for some unscrutable reason of their own, they permitted me to go. When I returned to awareness, stars were peering down upon me like chill, incurious eyes between black and jagged lips of rock. The air had turned sharp, with the coldness of nightfall in a mountain land. My body ached with a hundred bruises, and my right forearm was limp and useless when I tried to raise myself. A dark mist of horror stifled my thoughts. Struggling to my feet with pain-wracked effort, I called aloud, though I knew that none would answer me. Then striking match after match, I searched the chasm, and found myself, as I had expected, alone. Nowhere was there any trace of my companions. They had vanished utterly, 
as clouds vanish. Somehow by night, with a broken arm, I must have climbed from the steep fissure. I must have made my way down the frightful mountainside and out of the nameless haunted and guarded land. I remember that the sky was clear, the stars were undimmed by any semblance of cloud, and that somewhere in the valley I found one of our llamas, still laden with its stock of provisions. Plainly I was not pursued by the guardians. Perhaps they were concerned only with the warding of that mysterious primal city from human intrusion. Never shall I learn the secret of those ruinous walls and crumbling keeps, nor the fate of my companions. But still, through my nightly dreams and diurnal visions, the dark shapes move with tumult and thunder of a thousand storms, and my soul is crushed into the earth with the burden of their eminence, and they pass over me with the speed and vastness of vengeful gods, and I hear their voices calling like clarions in the sky, with ominous, world-shaking syllables that the ear can never seize. You've been listening to The Primal City by Clark Ashton Smith, who once said, only the impossible has any real charm. The possible has been vulgarized by happening too often. I've enjoyed being with you, but now I must go. I hope to be with you again soon. Please be well, and thank you for listening to me. Thank you.